Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Hear now the word of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We confess that if you had left us on our own to try to find our way to you, that we could never have done it. But we thank you that you have approached us, that you have come to us in the midst of our sin, of our ignorance, and you have illuminated our way. You have shown us your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the way of salvation that you have opened up for us in him. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless now this reading and the preaching of your word. We pray that Christ might be exalted, that he might be made known, and we ask, O Lord, that you would give each one of us faith and repentance, that we might receive your word as we should. We pray all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> well, brothers and sisters, uh, if you are interested in a text of Scripture that tells you perhaps the two most important things you could ever know, and also contains perhaps the most controversial statement in the history of the world, then you're in the right place this morning, because that's basically the text that we have before us. Matthew 16, 13 through 20 is not really all that long, but there are a lot of important things that are in uh, these words. In a way, the basic teaching of this text is not all that difficult, not all that complicated. We learn here that Jesus Christ is the great Son of Man, the long-awaited Messiah, and we learn that he is building a church here on earth. Those are these two really important things. At the same time, we're also reminded that this, these things are not just abstract doctrines for us to confess, but they are matters that demand a response from us. They demand commitment and devotion from us. The fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the fact that he's building a church here on earth it means that we must be devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ as our only Savior and that we must be committed to his church as the place where we meet him and the place where we are built up in our most holy faith here in this world. 
So we'll look first at verses 13 through 16. There are really two parts to this text. Verses 13 through 16, uh, here we see Jesus asking his disciples a couple of questions, and we hear the answers that his disciples give. So as Jesus and his disciples come into this region of Caesarea Philippi, he poses the first question to his disciples. He says, who do people, or wh- uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So we recognize here that, in a way, this is kind of an impersonal question. All right? it's, it's, this, is actually, this is the easier of the two questions, because Jesus is asking his disciples, what are other people saying? It's always easier to give a report about other people than to have to give an answer for yourself. And so Jesus says to them, who do people, what do people say that the Son of Man is? And one thing we need to recognize as we hear this first question is that the question itself is ambiguous. An ambiguous question is one that could be read in more than one way. So that we're not entirely sure when we first hear it what exactly the question is asking. All right, so why is it that this question is ambiguous? Well, when Jesus said, refers to the Son of Man, who exactly is he referring to? One way we might read this is that Jesus is asking his disciples, how do people interpret Daniel chapter 7? Because in Daniel chapter 7, we read about the Son of Man. When you read the Gospels and you hear this title of the Son of Man, it's actually drawing this language from Daniel 7. So I want to read just a couple of verses from Daniel 7. This is important background for this text. So uh, Daniel 7, verses 13 through uh, 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night vision. So in Daniel 7, the prophet is seeing a series of visions at night. So he says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. This is an absolutely amazing Old Testament prophecy because here Daniel is seeing a vision of the Ancient of Days. So this is, this is a great title for God himself, the Ancient of Days. And he's surrounded in this vision by 10,000 times 10,000 angels, which for those of you who are not quick with math, that's 100 million angels. So this is an incredibly awesome scene. And yet in the midst of this scene, there's one like a son of man who comes before God. And that means that there's one who's like us, one who looks like you and me, a human being. And this human being comes before God as he's surrounded by these millions of angels. And something that we would not expect happens. All honor and glory and dominion in an everlasting kingdom is given to this human being. Now that's... That's a a remarkable thing. And so when you think about that, it's not that surprising. It wouldn't be surprising if the people of Jesus' day who liked theology, 
You know, the people like to sit around and talk about Christian doctrine. Well, I guess they wouldn't call it Christian doctrine. Talk about Jewish doctrine. I guess they would have called it that at that time. You can sort of see them sitting around the fire at night and saying, Hey, I was reading Daniel 7 the other day. Who do you think the Son of Man is? You can sort of see that being an interesting theological question. Who is this? And so maybe Jesus is saying, or maybe the disciples hear him saying, what do, how do people interpret Daniel 7, this amazing Old Testament prophecy? And yet we sort of wonder, maybe there's something more to the question than just this. Because you see, already to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man. And so maybe this is a way of Jesus saying, who do people say that I am? And so we wonder, how are the disciples hearing this question? What do they think Jesus is really asking them? So we're curious what their answer is. And their answer, we read in verse 14, they say, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, whichever way they were hearing Jesus' question, this is not a particularly good answer. If they were thinking that this is a question about how do, how do people interpret Daniel 7? What are people saying about this passage of Scripture? And if people of Jesus' day are saying, well, Daniel 7 is talking about John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of those other great prophets of old, that's surely not sufficient. It's not a very good answer because, I mean, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, those were great prophets. But let's face it. All glory and honor and dominion in an everlasting kingdom was never and will never be given to any of them. So it's not a good answer. But maybe if the disciples heard Jesus to say, what are people saying about me? If this is what the people are saying about Jesus, that's not a good answer either, is it? I mean, Jesus is, he was a great prophet, but he was so much more. And by this point in Jesus' ministry, the people needed to recognize that he is much, much greater than Jeremiah or Elijah or John the Baptist. And so, however it is that the disciples were hearing Jesus' question, whatever it is, However, they were reporting the answers of the people. The answer wasn't really very good. And so we're not surprised, perhaps, that Jesus asks a second question. And he says the second time, but who do you say that I am? And you see this question, the second question is different in two ways. First, it specifies Jesus is asking about himself. He is making clear that he is the son of man of Daniel 7. He is the human being to whom all honor and glory in an everlasting kingdom is given. But you also see that he personalizes this question. No longer are the disciples just to report what other people are saying, which is kind of easy, right? What other people say, oh, they're saying this or that. Now he turns to them personally. Who do you say that I am? They have to give an account for their own beliefs, their own commitments now. 
And you know, this is the most important question that these disciples are ever going to be asked. Who do you say that I am? And brothers and sisters, this is the most important question that you will ever be asked, because this question comes to each one of us here today as well. And this is a reminder to us that Christianity is ultimately about Jesus and what you think of him and how you respond to him. Christianity is not, the bottom line is that Christianity is not a bunch of theology. It is not a religion. It is not a spirituality. Christianity is about a human being, a person who walked on this earth. He walked on this earth like we do. And he was crucified. And he rose again. And he ascended to heaven. And the most important question that any of us will ever be asked, what do you think of him? And that's also the message that we preach to the world. We don't preach a theology, a religion, a spirituality. We preach a person and a message about him and about a way of salvation that is found only in him. And you know, it would be easier for the Christian church if we were just preaching a religion, a spirituality. I mean, there are lots of religions, lots of spiritualities that are out there. Some of them are kind of cool. A lot of people think they're cool. People would be less offended if we didn't preach a person. It's a lot easier to be devoted to a spirituality than to a person. And yet, this is what we do. We preach the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us need to keep this in mind. It is about him and what you think of him. Do you believe in him? Are you devoted to him? It's the most important thing that any of us could ever be asked. Well, how are the disciples going to respond when confronted with this? Well, Simon Peter, one of the disciples, gives a response on behalf of the others in verse 16. And he replies with just a few words. But this is a really good answer. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I want you to think about this answer that Peter gives for a moment. Now, it's already been made clear in this text that Jesus is the son of man. And that is an incredible thing to learn. The Lord Jesus Christ is a human being to whom belongs all honor and power in an everlasting kingdom. And now there are two other titles that Peter ascribes to Jesus. First, he says, you are the Christ. And it's important for us to remember that Christ is a title. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? It is a title, and it means the anointed one. It's the same title as Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. They mean the same thing. He is the anointed one. He is the one who is the long-awaited king of the people of God. Long ago, God appointed David to be king over Israel, and he promised to David, your throne will endure forever. One of your descendants is going to sit upon the throne of God's people forever. And yet, in Jesus' day, 
the people had to wonder, had, God prom- has, had God's promise failed? Because that throne had actually been vacant for hundreds of years. Was God going to keep his word? Was the son of David again going to sit upon the throne of his people? Peter says, you are that man. We believe that you are the anointed one. Come to be king over Israel. And it's not only that, but Peter gives him a second title. He says, you are the son of the living God. Not only are you the son of David to rule over Israel, to rule over the people of God, but you are God's own son. You are not only a human being, but you are, you are true God. You are God's own son. Now, we sort of wonder, how much did Peter actually understand when he said this? How deeply did Peter really grasp what he was saying? Because when we read the Gospels, we don't always find Peter being the most insightful or the most quick to understand. So we wonder, but we do have to observe that the confession that Peter makes says these two, really these two most important things that we say about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is true man and true God. In one person, he is the king of God's people, the Messiah that they awaited for. And so we come to the end of the first part of this text. And in these two questions and two answers, there is such uh, what great things said about our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to know this. And it is made clear here who Christ is. And so we turn to verses 17 through 20, and here in the second part of our text, Jesus is done asking questions. Uh, We don't hear any more from the disciples at this point. Now Jesus gives some follow-up instruction. Given the fact that Peter has so wonderfully confessed who Jesus is, now Jesus has some follow-up that he needs to explain to them. Jesus begins in verse 17 By declaring Peter blessed, he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And Bar-Jonah simply means son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And it's helpful to hear this, isn't it? Because as I said a moment ago, Simon Peter, he often seems so slow. He often seems so hard-hearted. So, so slow to understand who Jesus is. And yet he's made this great confession. We wonder, how is it? How could Peter make such a great confession? And the answer is, it's not because he was so brilliant. It's not because he was so pious. Not because he was the greatest human being in the world. It was because God the Father in heaven revealed it to him. Because God opened his heart to believe. That's the only reason. And brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning and you join Peter's confession, if you believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of the living God, it is not because you are brilliant. It is not because you are more pious than anybody else. It is only because God in his mercy has revealed this to you and opened your heart to believe and to confess. It reminds us, if, if we've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew, it reminds us of what Jesus said uh, at the, uh, toward the end of Matthew 11. He thanked, Jesus thanked his father. He said, you have, you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you've revealed them to little children. And that's the way God o- operates. 
God is delighted so often to reveal these things to those who seem to be the foolish of the world, to those who seem to be the slow of the world. Anyone who confesses Jesus does so because of the sovereign grace of God and praise God that he is merciful in opening our hearts to confess him and to trust in him. So after this opening statement declaring Simon Peter blessed, now he says these, uh, these words in verses 18 and 19, which gets us into these, what I, what I refer to at the beginning of the sermon as perhaps the most controversial words in the history of the world. And I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment. But let me read verses 18 and 19 again. Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right. So Jesus has just asked these questions and has revealed uh, to Peter who he is, and Peter has confessed who Christ is. And so we wonder, where's Jesus going to go from here? If Jesus has something he really wants to tell his disciples next, what would it be? I mean, what would you guess it would be? If knowing who Jesus is is the most important thing we could ever know, what might be the next thing that we would really need to know? And the answer is, Jesus next wants to talk about his church. It may not be what we would guess. But it seems that the next most important thing that Jesus wants us to know is that he's building a church on this earth. And we need to know how important that is. And so we wonder, why is it? Why, why is this the next thing that Jesus wants to talk about? Why is this so important? And in those, these two verses, verses 18 and 19, there are three things I'm going to call your attention to. I mean, they're, they're related. You can't understand them apart from each other. But I think we can identify three specific things that make the church so important, why it's so important for us to reckon with the fact that Jesus is building his church here on this earth. So the first one is this. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So the first reason is this, that the church is built on a foundation. The church is built on a foundation. Now he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And that might, might not seem immediately obvious. What, what, what does it mean to be built on a rock? But see, again, if we, were, if we had been reading through the whole Gospel of Matthew, we would know this by now. Because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, so the, which is uh, at the end of Matthew 7, Jesus, uh, he says to those who are hearing him, those who hear my words and put them into practice, they're like those who build their house on a rock. But if you hear my words and don't put them into practice, you're like, you're like building a house on sand. And, and what are the implications of that? Well, if you build your house on a rock, when the storms come, your house will stand firm. But if you build your house on the sand and the storm comes and there's a flood, your house is going to get washed away. So when Jesus talks about building on a rock, it's a way of saying it's building on a foundation. If you build a building, it has to have a foundation if you want it to stand when there's a flood, when there's an earthquake. 
And yet, these words that Jesus says are puzzling and maybe even troubling because he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You see, the name Peter means rock. On this rock I will build my church. And this is perhaps troubling to us because we know, probably most of you know already, that the Roman Catholic Church for a very long time has looked at this verse and said, you see here, Jesus is appointing Peter to be the first pope, a pope who will rule in Rome, and that there's going to be a series of popes that succeed Peter throughout all history up to the present day. So we need to face that as we're considering this text. And one thing that we note, a basic observation, is that the text itself doesn't say what the Roman Catholic Church says it says. I mean, it just doesn't. It doesn't say anything about a papacy. It doesn't say anything about the city of Rome. It doesn't say anything about a series of office holders who are going to come after Peter in an unbroken line. I mean, it just simply doesn't say those things. Now, we, we, can, we can understand how if Roman Catholics, for other reasons, believe that there is a pope who rules in Rome, we can understand how they would read that into the, the, these words, but the words themselves don't teach that. And yet, that's not sufficient for us because we, we need to consider, what do these words mean positively? They're obviously here for our instruction, and Jesus obviously thinks they're very important. We're puzzled. Why, why does Jesus speak in terms of Peter as rock? Does that really make sense? And here I'd suggest that a couple of texts from the Apostle Paul can be very helpful for understanding what Jesus is talking about here. The first text is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. There, Jesus says that there is no, no foundation can be laid except that which has been laid, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So if, if you want a really short answer to the question, what is the foundation of the church? You know, say you only get three words to answer. I've got the three words for you. Lord Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of the church. But let's say you're given a few more words, like you can elaborate a little bit. Well, then you might want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul there says, Jesus, uh, that, the, the, that the Lord uh, has built the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ as the cornerstone. That's a little bit more elaborate answer. Jesus is still the foundation of the church, but you see that Jesus is the foundation of the church with his apostles and prophets. The Lord has been pleased, in other words, to build his church, to establish his church in its early days through the ministry of his holy apostles and prophets. And if you want to understand how that happens, then we read the book of Acts. Because what we see in the book of Acts that Jesus appoints his apostles along with some prophets in the New Testament. And they have this responsibility of preaching that gospel in its early days, making known the way of the Lord Jesus, of planting churches, 
of appointing elders in all the churches, of writing the books of the New Testament. And we might ask ourselves, where would the church be without that ministry of the apostles and prophets? Now, you might say, well, couldn't God have done it in some other way? Well, I'm sure God could have done it in some other way had he been pleased to do that. But how the Lord wished to establish his church and to build its foundation was through that ministry of the apostles in those early decades of the New Testament church. And so Jesus says here in Matthew 16, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church through Peter and the other apostles. Remember, Peter was answering on behalf of the other apostles. It wasn't just him. And as Paul said in Ephesians 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in the plural, as Peter and the apostles confessed Jesus and made his name known, the Lord was going to use them in the building of the church in its early days. So that's the first thing that we need to know. This is why the church is so important. It's built on a foundation, an apostolic foundation. But secondly, in the second part of verse 18, Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the second really important thing, the second reason why the church is so important. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I said a moment ago, why is it that you need if you're building a building, why do you need to build it on a foundation? Well, so when the storms of this life come, the building won't be washed away. But you see, when Jesus is talking about the foundation of his church, he's not talking about a physical building, is he? He's not concerned about physical buildings where people meet for worship. I mean, they need a foundation, a physical foundation too. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about a spiritual foundation Because what the church has to be concerned about in this world is not physical storms. The church needs to be worried about spiritual storms, about spiritual assaults. And the fact is, is that Satan and the forces of hell hate the church of Jesus Christ. And Satan delights in nothing more than opposing the church, trying to seduce the church, and trying to make the church stumble and fall. And yet Jesus gives this promise that this church is built on a rock so that when the forces of hell come against that church with all its wrath and fury, it cannot prevail. The church will not fall before the assaults of Satan. And brothers and sisters, as amazing as that promise is, we have to acknowledge that the Lord Jesus has kept that promise in ways that must have far surpassed what these disciples could have imagined. We might ask ourselves for a moment, of all the governments in the world at this time, time that Jesus spoke, or all the militaries in the world at the time Jesus said this, or maybe uh, all uh, all the businesses in the world at the time Jesus said this, how many of them do you think are standing today? I cannot prove it to you, but I'm pretty sure the answer is zero. Probably none of them are still in existence today. But the church of Jesus Christ, it's not only still in existence, but it has spread to the uttermost parts of the world. It's spread to Capistrano Beach, right? Capistrano Beach. 
I mean, that's amazing. From the perspective of Jerusalem, this is, this is an amazing thing. The Lord Jesus has kept his promise. Satan has been fighting and assaulting the church for 2,000 years, and the church, in response, has spread to the ends of the earth. And still today, throughout the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, and God's people are being gathered in. Praise God. And brothers and sisters, Satan hates you personally if you confess Christ Do you want to have to withstand the assaults of Satan all by yourself? I don't want to. And the good news is that you don't have to. The Lord has given you the church as a bulwark, as a fortress, as a place that can be a shelter from the storm. It is in the church, in its ministry, in its fellowship that you have support against the forces of evil in this world. Do not forsake that fortress that the Lord has provided. And finally, the the third reason why the church is so important, verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this third reason why the church is so important is because it has a set of keys. And you think, well, that's not very remarkable. I've got a set of keys in my pocket. But you see... If you have keys, it means that you have a certain authority, doesn't it? Because the thing that you have keys for, you have a certain authority over that thing, right? If you have keys for your car, it's because it's your car. If you have keys for your home, it's because it's your home. If you have keys for the place where you work, it's because, well, it's your business or you have some kind of position of authority in that business, not just everyone has sets of keys for things, right? Not, you don't just give keys for your home to anyone. You don't pass them out on the street. There'd be no point of having locks on your doors if you did that. Keys designate authority. And the church has authority. That's what Jesus is saying. It has authority. It has authority to open up gates. Authority to open up a door. And you ask, gates for what? A door to What? To the kingdom of heaven. The church has authority to unlock the gates of the kingdom of heaven. Through its ministry. Through the gospel that it proclaims. It opens up the gates of heaven. And so, brothers and sisters. Do you wish to enter the kingdom of heaven? You wish to be a citizen of Christ's everlasting kingdom. You better find the keys. It is the church that has the keys. It is the church that has the word that opens up the gates of heaven. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the end of this text, as we see these three reasons why the church is so important, there is an exhortation that we all must hear. And that is this. Commit yourself to the church of Jesus Christ. Remain in the church. Pray for the church. Serve the church. Any of you, most likely, if you have been in the church of Jesus Christ for any length of time, then you have experienced times when the church 
has wronged you, when the church has failed you, maybe when the church has embarrassed you, and when you have experienced times like this, it is tempting to say, forget about the church. Take or leave the church. I'm going to try to just do it on my own. And this text comes before us and it exhorts us, when those times come, do not give in to those temptations. The church is full of sinful people and there are times when they will wrong you. They will fail you. But remember at those times that the church has a firm foundation. It is Christ's church. And it is built on a foundation of him and the faithful ministry of his apostles and prophets. And despite the sinfulness of Christians in the church, the gates of hell have not and will never stand against it. Do not forsake the church of Jesus Christ. Avail yourself of its ministry. Pray for it and serve it. Our text ends on what may seem like a little bit of a down note. Verse 20, Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We sort of think that we're supposed to do just the opposite of that. But we have to remember, if, if we were going to go on and look at the very next text after this, we would see that Jesus has some unfinished business. Before the New Testament church is going to be established, Jesus has to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Before the word of this gospel is to be made known through all the world, Jesus is going to have to go to the cross. Well, praise God that he has given us a great Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that he has built a church that opens up the gates of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that you have provided a long-awaited Savior for your people, a long-awaited Son of David, one who is the Anointed One, the one to whom all dominion and glory belongs, he who was the Son and is the Son of the living God. We praise you for this great Savior, for this great salvation. O oh Lord, we pray that we would never cease to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would love him. We pray that we would seek him and be devoted to him and serve him with joy, with gratitude, with zeal. May we never forget that the Christian faith is all about him. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as difficult as it sometimes can be, to be a member and servant of your church. Despite the fact that your church is persecuted in this world, that your church is often small in this world, that your church often does things that are embarrassing in this world, despite the fact that sometimes we feel wronged in your church, we thank you. We thank you that you have established your church upon a firm foundation. And that Satan will never conquer your church, though at times it seems that he gets the upper hand. Father, we pray that we might remain devoted to your church and to its ministry, to its fellowship. And we pray that your church, even this particular church, this congregation, might remain firmly fixed upon an apostolic foundation. 
Because without that, your church ceases to be the church. Oh Lord, we lift these things up to you, thanking you that you hear us and that you answer us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.